Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. A pioneer girl born in the big woods and roamed the prairie with her ma and pa. When life became wilder, she wrote it all down and got an assist from her own little chick. She took a place in literary history and lived out her golden years. The end. Let's talk about Laura Ingalls Wilder. Laura Elizabeth Ingalls was born in 1867 in the big woods of Wisconsin. Uh, let's just place her in history. In 1867, Nebraska became the 37th state. Jesse James was doing his criminal thing. Congress approved the Lincoln Memorial. The U.S. bought Alaska from Russia for $7,200,000. Alfred Nobel patented dynamite. And, of course, Laura Ingalls, Elizabeth Ingalls, was born to Charles and Caroline in Pepin, Wisconsin. Laura Ingalls Wilder was the author of nine of the most beloved children's books in American history. They've been constantly in print since 1931. I, myself, have the box set from 1971, the yellow one with the Garth Williams illustrations. Now, we've been back and forth about how much book information to include in the podcast. So for those who wouldn't mind or would love a quick two or three minute summary of each book, stay tuned until the end, won't you? And we'll put that at the end so as not to disturb the flow of the podcast. Laura was the second of the five children in the family, only four of whom made it into the books. They had a good life in the big woods, although they weren't as far away from neighbors as Laura purported they were. They were actually within within a mile or two of their cousins, the ones that appear in the book, as visitors from afar. But somehow, Charles still felt crowded. And there's always something better. Yeah, and that was actually kind of typical of the people of the time, I think. There was a, just a wave. Like, people would stay a little while and then move. Stay a little while and move. It's like mm-hmm. pebbles in the ocean. You know how they like kind of right. move, but they mostly kind of stay the same place? Right. The population was really headed west about now. He wanted to be his own man, and he felt like there were opportunities in the west that didn't exist back east in the more settled areas. So they went all over, kind of in a big rectangle, actually. (laughs) Um, Independence, Kansas, which is not too far from here. Um, to Walnut Grove, we will Minnesota. Walnut yeah, Grove Walnut Grove. Yeah, is the is the place where they kind of landed in the TV show. And, right, we'll talk about that later. Um, and then uh, Minnesota, and left out completely from the account was Burr Oak, Iowa, and that's the place where the tragedy happens um, with the little boy Charles Frederick mm-hmm. dying in infancy. But that's completely gone. It's like they never went there. It's like they just stayed in mm-hmm. Minnesota the whole time. So sad. I don't wonder that she left it out. <laughs> um, finally, though, the big the big town, the place where the majority of the books are set, is Dismet, South Dakota, where Ma and Pa actually ended up staying and Mary the, the rest of their lives. So Charles finally stopped his wanderlust. And I think Caroline put her foot down, really. Finally. I think he would have gone. I think he wanted to go further. But she had been a school teacher, and education was very important to her, which she passed on to every single one mm-hmm. of her daughters, including the daughter that ended up being blind, uh, had a very, very high regard for education. And she put her foot down in South Dakota. There is a school to send the girls mm-hmm. to. We will be stopping here. Done. Yeah, well, he would disappear and come back and say, pack it all up, Caroline, we're moving on. Yeah. And she was dutiful and said goodbye to whatever log heaven they were living in and packed up the whole fam. They moved for any number of reasons. Um, at one point, the government forced them off because they were on Indian territory. They moved because of a job opportunity. They moved because they had to move back once because somebody that was renting their old house had defaulted on the payments, and they just moved back. I mean, it was any number of reasons. Right. The overlying thread of it was pause, wander, lust for the open highway. I'm married to one of those, I think. Are you really? I think I am not. <laughs> I'm in my, like, 30-something... My husband's in his, like, 32nd house, I think. Really? Well, we move around quite a bit. Yeah. For, my daughter, who's 14, has lived in 11 houses. So, see, you're part of but it. But he wants to, he wanted the roots. Nah. No. It was life. I don't think it was wanderlust. He would have stayed. Ah. Pa didn't want to. No. But he did. Now, due to all this moving around, Laura had to um, be educated at home. My goodness, was Ma a good teacher? Apparently. Yes. Homeschool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something I could never do. The original homeschool, they had these readers. I want to say they were called McGuffey readers. 
that pretty much everyone used at the time. It's standardized national education, which we do not have now, where mm-hmm. every child of about the same age was learning out of the same book. Learning the same information. Mm-hmm. And you could kind which of tell how old people were instead of asking how old they were. They would say, what reader are, are you mm-hmm. at school? Right. You know, you're in the third, you're about eight, or, you know, you're, you know whatever. It's, right. It was very good, I thought, because you could move in this way and keep yes. up with your class, kind of, right. wherever you were. And I'm sure uh, Laura was being that there was only girls in the family and she was the second oldest that she had to help out at home a lot with the littler ones and the chores. And she was a tomboy. It's everywhere. Yeah. (laughs) Tomboy. No hiding that. And you know, in the book, this is interesting. This is kind of off topic, but Ma is portrayed in the books as being this, um, it has to be said, rather proper, uptight Mm -hmm. Victorian woman, because don't forget, these are Victorians we're looking at the the year, you know, um, that she didn't, she dithered about letting Laura go in the fields and help Mm -hmm. her pa and all this. Well, honestly, if no one was looking, Ma went out and helped in the fields, too. Oh, right. She had to. Yeah, not in town, though. Right. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, there were standards. Well, we're all a little... A little more casual at home. Yeah. <laughs> than when we get out in town. <laughs> so who knows how many petticoats actually did get worn on the claim, but we don't know. Oh. They wore an awful lot of clothes, but perhaps there was a little bit of a, I don't know. Hot in the summers. Goodness. Remind me to, I'm going to post this picture of a person I have. It is clearly the middle of summer, and these people have on corsets, chemises, Ugh. petticoats, Tights or, you know, hose, mm-hmm. hand-knitted hose. Thick. Those are thick. thick. Those aren't, yeah, yeah, no, they're not like they're the hose of today. Several right. petticoats, which were about 10 yards around at the bottom. So imagine how much fabric that is, and there's not just one of right. them. And they've got an overdress, and they have a sunbonnet. Mm-hmm. The sleeves go to the wrist, and they're tight because it's fashionable. The neck is high because you didn't show anything. No. You had your buttoned boots on. <laughs> you must have smelled That's great. so awful. <laughs> I'm sure you smelled I would have been like this big soaking wet sweat ball. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I would not have fared well in those times. And one of my reenactor friends um, had said that they weren't as hot as you would think. Really? And then, you know, then again, I don't know if they were wearing all the layers either. And I wonder if there's an acclimation issue, because, you know, as soon as the temperature gets warm here, we strip down, and yeah. if we stayed covered, would we acclimate? But I always I see know. pictures of those ladies pushing wheelbarrows full of buffalo chips, That's right. fully dressed. This isn't, <laughs> or behind like, the plow. Yeah. Fully, I mean, yeah. yeah, they're not. Well, they've got the sunbonnet on. That's keeping the shit, keeping them in the... No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, so, so is it really because the photographer's there? Or yes, is it because, right. you know, he's not going to snap a picture. He's not going to leave yeah. out from behind or and snap a right. picture of you. I mean, he's got a setup. You know he's right. there. So I'm not sure. Is that an artifact of the photographer being there, or did people really dress like that hauling buffalo chips? I don't know. Any input on that, please let me know. I've always wondered about that. Yeah, that's a good question. So Laura got a job um, teaching at actually the age of 15. Uh, I think it was a wink-wink, nudge-nudge situation. Theoretically, she had to be 16, but somebody wanted her and only her for their school. And she wasn't done with school yet. She wasn't done with school. She was teaching at one and going to another. Yeah, she was like, yeah. Helping Pa. Yeah. She had a lot to do. Um, that year, she took the exam, and the examiner purposely did not ask for her age. And he knew the deal, too. Everybody knew. Um, she was actually smaller than some of her students. She was four foot eleven, which makes me, at five foot one, feel really tall. Tall. I got an inch on you. And her husband was five four. Really? Handsome as a get out. If you've seen a picture of him. Five four. Yes. Oh yes. Huh. But anyway, um, and so at, she never formally graduated from school, um, which is kind of a moot point because that school that she went to didn't even have a 12th grade. So what she done? Legal graduation, not even, I mean, you know, you can formally graduate and walk down the aisle and all that, but really you didn't have a 12th grade education mm-hmm. from that school, boys or girls. And a lot of times, actually, in this time, the girls on the prairie might have gotten a little more education than the boys because the boys uh, left, the older boys left and only came back during the winter term. So once they got, you know, big enough to really be needed on the farm, a lot of times the girls would be the biggest kids there. Right. Yeah, the boys would just be gone, and you'd just see them during the winter when no real work could be done on a farm. So I keep thinking the wives were more highly educated formally than the husbands, really. So you're saying the women were smarter? No. (laughs) Uh, I don't know about smarter. We are not feminist. But they could parse a sentence, which I don't think I could parse a sentence. I don't think I could either. They could give me a million dollars. Parse? Parse a sentence. Is it diagramming? 
Yeah. Is that the same thing? Okay. So. You just take apart the <laughs> yes. sentence and... Yes. I, yeah, yeah. At this, I used to love to do that. The lines and... I have yeah. never done that. No. Seriously. Oh, you haven't? No. Oh, I remember doing that in school and I did enjoy it. But if you asked me to do it now, I would really have a... I think I'm going to put a sentence up and have you diagram it. Oh, that would be really embarrassing. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> think of a good sentence. Use the word parse in it. <laughs> Susan parses a sentence. Um, at age 18, she married Almanzo Wilder. She who was, scored him. Yeah, who was 28 at the time. He was not the only one that had asked for her hand either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she had had quite a few suitors. This is alluded to in one book where, you know, the, everybody's sleigh riding and people keep stopping by to ask her, but she's waiting for Almanzo to stop by. But it's alluded to. But, yeah, she didn't date around. That wasn't done. But she did have some other suitors besides Almanzo. And the thing is, he's 10 years 10 older. 10 years than older. Her. And he started courting her, as the case may be, when he was 25 and she was 15, which is not the same as the books. In the books, she made him, there were two reasons she made him younger. The main reason is she was afraid that her readers would think she was a child bride. And she had a horror of that, thinking that she hadn't made up her mind properly, Mm -hmm. that someone forced her into the marriage or whatever. Um, And the other thing is she wanted to have that artificial drama about him not being old enough to have a claim Yet, oh, and I having, see. Yes. you know, tricked the government, you know, he was 25 and she made him in the book to be 19 mm-hmm. and not old enough to have a claim. That was like dramatic. Yeah. Close I think age. in the TV show they were close in age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that made a little more sense. I love that her nickname for him, Manly. I know. And I we like, should all call our husbands Manly and see what happens. <laughs> Brian would look at me like, what? <laughs> she had another name. He always called her best because he had a sister named Laura. Mm-hmm was completely absent from the books. Right. And he always called her Bess from her middle name, Elizabeth. Interesting. And so she referred to herself as Mama Bess to her daughter and, and everything. Mm-hmm. Speaking of daughters, a year later, after she married Alonzo Wilder and they moved out um, slightly away from her parents, she gave birth to her daughter, Rose. Rose. Named after the, the prairie, prairie roses. Rose. Yep. Yeah, that's lovely. It is beautiful. And then a year after that, she gave birth to a son... Who didn't uh, make it. He didn't make it. And that's the last that's the last child she ever had. She made reference in some of her letters later as Rose was asking why she hadn't had a brother or a sister. Um, to the diphtheria that they caught soon afterward. Um, both of them, Almanzo and Laura, both both caught diphtheria. And I'm not sure, but Laura seemed to think that that's what caused her secondary infertility. Infertility, yeah. I'm not yeah, I'm not sure that's legitimate. And also had issues with Almanzo, and I wonder if that... Well, I know it caused some paralysis. That's, uh, <laughs> at the time, it's almost completely gone from modern um, countries now. Right. It's, still po- it's still possible in the world to get it, but it can mm. cause paralysis. And Almanzo was just never strong again. He was never able to work the way he once could. Right. And that really impacted their ability to keep up on their claim. In the last book, which was actually mm-hmm. post- posthumously published, Laura had lost attention on the stove mm-hmm. and had caught the so house you think on she fire. Was depressed? I, I think she was I think she was suffering from grief. I mean I think she yeah. was grieving the loss. I don't think she was fully there. Right. But you know you're supposed to pick up your stockings and go. I mean, right. you're not supposed to lay around and be sad. I mean, nowadays we would probably have given her quite a long period of recuperation and mourning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of friends around her. But here she's in the middle of nowhere. Her husband is working every day far away. And, right. You know, I don't know that he was the most so emotional of men <laughs> either. I don't think she burnt the house down on purpose. No. no. Oh no. No no, no. 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 But I just think that was a symptom of. Yeah. Becoming a little scatterbrained after a child is born is pretty normal. Becoming scatterbrained after a child passes. And she had another child to take care of. To take care of. So, surely. The life in South Dakota became really hard life for the little family. They just, Almanzo could not keep up um, with the amount of acreage Mm -hmm. that they had. And And they weren't diversified in their product either. And what is interesting me about the their lives is the amount the number of times that they lose everything and then build back up again mm-hmm. and to some sort of success and just to lose it all again and just build back up again i mean it, that is that is very interesting especially i mean in the times that the books were published 
that would be inspirational. I do think that's a good point, because they were published, um, you know, at, during the Depression. The, the first ones were published during the Depression, and I can see where people would really seize upon these. It's like, see, the American spirit is enduring. That's right. They, you know, Paul lost all his crops to grasshoppers and to drought, and he just moved on, or they picked up their stuff and moved to a better opportunity. Right, and right. So many people in the Depression picked up and moved. Where right. They go west to California. Right. So they did uh, have to move far away from her parents. They did uh, have a quick sojourn down to Florida at the urging of Almanzo's sister. But that just didn't, didn't work out very well. They weren't there very long. They were pretty miserable. It didn't work out at all. Um, they ended up in getting some propaganda posters um, for Missouri, the land of the big red apple. Uh, easy farming, the climate mm-hmm. wasn't as harsh as the prairies, uh, you know. Um, it was the time of small town marketing, really. Right. Small towns wanted to attract businesses and people to sure. live in their town. Uh, railroad stations to their town. And so this kind of propaganda was going around and it, it their friends had suggested this to them. Hey, you should check this out. And it was the modern day, you know, Facebook. Mm-hmm. Hey, check this yeah. out. Click <laughs> Status, on. move to Missouri. <laughs> yeah. The impetus to move there took a hold of them, and, and they saved money, and they moved to Mansfield, Missouri. And that ended up being the, the last home of Almanzo and Laura. Right. They established the Rocky Ridge Farm in Mansfield, and uh, they had learned from their previous failures in farming, and, and they diversified a little bit, but... Since they were establishing a farm, the gardener in me knows that it takes a while to get things going. And regardless of, of you know, your crops, it's going to take some time. And, and they farmed poultry and dairy and a fruit farm. But, of course, like I said, it's going to take a while for those trees to pr- start producing. They uh, actually had to get other jobs. Yeah, they. Um, it's actually a, it was a fruit tree claim that had kind of been abandoned half we through the process. Some of the trees were planted, mm-hmm. and some were just what they call healed in, which is a way to keep the roots, keep the trees from dying. They just like you just dig a ditch, and you lay them in the ditch, yeah, and cover them with yeah. dirt, and hope for the best. Yep. But nobody had time to actually do the proper right. or dig a hole, blah blah blah. So that's one of the first things they had and to do. And apple trees, get them going. You're looking at five to five, seven yeah. years before, before you can get fruit off of right. them. Here they five go. Five to seven good years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So here they are. That's your wealth right there. Right. That's your thing. But they have lots of firewood, and my goodness, was Laura just out there. And for the first couple of years, she wrote that the house received what she called a lick and a promise. So, you know, mm-hmm. the dish is probably piling up in the sink. Yeah, I mean, but, who knows what yeah. a lick and a promise is to a Victorian. <laughs> I mean, it was probably, like, better than my house is right now. Yeah, that's right. But, well, you we probably didn't have as many dishes. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Oh, I'll just rinse this one off. Oh, use my sleeve. Well, hygiene. my petticoat. May not have been as high either. Like, That's no, true. Germs, just, you know, whatever. Don't need to sanitize them in the dishwasher. So the culture shock was a little bit of something, too. You know, here they are used to the prairie where a fire is a really big catastrophe. It can sweep through that dry grass like no tomorrow. And here these people in Missouri are just burning trees because they're irritating. <laughs> Which they're just like, <laughs> I know, that took a long time for them to get used to. It's a whole culture shock. Plus, the Ozark culture hadn't been integrated for too long into other societies. It was a little bit of an insular culture. (laughs) You know, people are people, and they're always very friendly. And just like on the prairie, something happened, a flood happened, and people would go out of their way to go check on their neighbors, which I, I think is so, we need that more of that in America today, I think. Yeah, I think that's, like, one of the things I take away from all the little house. Even the story and all the books is that you can't get along without cooperation. That's true. The people that are just trying to make the right. same The way community, you your community, the people yeah. that you surround, you're surrounded with voluntarily or not. I mean, you move it, you buy a house, you don't necessarily buy your neighbors. <laughs> well, let's sound- buy them with brownies. <laughs> that is a brilliant strategy. I'm looking at these brownies she brought me right I here. did. Um, so let's take a little break so I can eat a brownie. Brownie! And we'll come back and we'll talk about Laura establishing her writing career. bit about Laura a little bit a lot of it because it's it's the reason why we know her let's talk about her writing career put it into perspective Rose is 
finishing high school, living with her aunt, Eliza Jane, who does make it into the books. She does. She is uh, Laura's least favorite teacher of all time. Mm-hmm. The one for whom she wrote the poem. Crazy, lousy Eliza Jean. The thing is that Rose, um, I, I talked about earlier how they had a culture shock. Mm-hmm. And Rose had been educated at home the way Laura had been for a few years before she went to school. Because she moved around just like Laura did as yeah. a child. She moved yeah. around a bit. And I think they kind of settled when she was about eight, I want to say. But she always found her schooling to be very substandard. But yet they wouldn't move her up because she wasn't of an age to go Mm -hmm. into the upper schools. And so she always felt that it was completely ridiculous. She remembers leaving school. This is stupid. I'm out of here. But didn't have any gifted classes at the time. No, gifted classes. And so really by the time she got to high school, she really felt like, you know, I've got to have some kind of other education. And so she was offered a home with Aunt Eliza, and that's where she went to finish. In Louisiana. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, She did not go to college. Rose did not. Yeah, just no money. Wanting to uh, say goodbye to her uh, Ozarkian roots and her prairie lifestyle that her parents had raised her in. She she was ready to say goodbye to it. And she she Rose moved on. She moved all over the world. Mm-hmm. All over the world. And as a matter of fact, she kind of found a second home in of all places, Albania. Albania. I know. I know. I was I was like Albania. Honestly, okay. Okay. Cultural reference. Albania, Albania, it borders on the Adriatic. Wow. <laughs> From Cheers. <laughs> Cheers, the TV show. Remember the TV Wow. Show. And the, the vocal stylings of Susan. Okay. Wow. Okay, no, I've never heard that, but now you know where. Oh. I was about to say I have no idea where Albania is, but now, thanks to perhaps Cliff Clavin, I'm not really sure. We Actually, that was Woody uh, saying it, I believe, in the show. Anyway. <laughs> Wow, okay, that's awesome. You spew forth all these wonderful details, and I can give you television quotes. That was so awesome, I have to, like, fan myself, that's really good. Um, Rose uh, is very driven to create a career for herself. Right. She is married, she marries. She married, and she became a realtor for a while. In California, with her husband. And keep in mind, California, at the time, right when she got there, was a very booming area. You know, everybody, it was the promised land. Right. It was the land of good climate. It was as far as you could go. It wasn't. Otherwise, yeah. But it was, um, that, that marriage was a little fraught with, you know, tension. I don't believe, from what I've read, that Rose was ever very easy to get along with. No, I bet she wasn't. And so, <laughs> I'm trying to be kind. Yeah, Her name so, is Rose. <laughs> so though she did have um, a drive and made a career as a freelance writer, she was always, I do believe, kind of at her core, kind of a lonely person. She made a lot of, of friends, but I don't mm-hmm. know how... how and connections. Close, and con- connections, right. yeah. I just don't know that they ever really made it all the way in. No. Seems like she has a tortured relationship with her mother. The mother we know is Laura Ingalls Wilder from the books. It seems to be some kind of albatross around <laughs> Rose's neck for yes. some reason. Well, it's a complicated relationship between any mother and daughter. Now, so here's Laura with this daughter who's gotten her things published in national papers. Right. And Laura submits some things to some rural magazines about farm life. Right. And gets a column. Yeah. A regular column in the Missouri Ruralist. And her column was, As a Farm Woman Thinks, was the title of her column. And it was kind of like mommy blogs of, of the day. And that's how she talked about the things that she knew and how to do them and the life of the women. And very similar to any bajillion uh, mommy blogs that are out there, including my own. <laughs> well, links to that later. Laura also became kind of well-known as an authority on poultry. And mm-hmm. was often asked to give talks. And when she couldn't give talks, she would write a speech and have someone deliver it. And her writing was very descriptive. And I wonder if that came from having to be the eyes for her sister Mary. Oh, that's interesting. Who had become blind. Blind. She was. It was necessary for her to notice details so mm-hmm. that she could tell Mary and basically paint the picture for Mary's mind since Mary couldn't see it anymore. Right. And I just do wonder if that early training... In describing the nearest, like, the wind. I mean, how many times has she described the way the wind blows? Laura did write a book called Pioneer Girl, kind of based on her memories. Um, But it was kind of rejected as being boring and lacking character development. And that can't be a good feeling to have your book rejected. No. And and I... 
what we're going to be talking about and we're easing into here. Laura, I just want to say, had an established career as a writer for a good 20 years before Pioneer Girl and the Little House, the Little House books came along. So she, there's some discussion and we'll have it about how much she did and how much her daughter did, but she, she did have an established career. So that's a fact. And Rose was, um, at this time, had lost quite a bit of her money. And she had taken on a couple of children um, as her own, had adopted them. And so she had some mouths to feed, and as well as to support herself. And, and she her started, lifestyle couldn't have been cheap. Yeah, flying about and flitting around. Um, going to Albania? Going to Albania. <laughs> um, I wonder if she had started to put pressure on her mother. I know, as the only child of aging parents she had to be concerned about what was going to happen to them and knowing that the responsibility was on her her and i think she chafed at that quite a bit um she did come back to live with them for a while and i think during that time the idea of perhaps taking her mother's memories and making books out of them took hold of both laura and rose because they took the same subject matter and both ran with it, although Rose wrote for an adult audience. Right. And Laura um, was thinking more for children. Right, exactly. Um, Rose Wilder wrote, let's call, uh, let's, the the books, which really aren't right. that well known now, although at the time they were bestsellers, um, Let the Hurricane Roar in 1932 and Freeland in 1938. Mm-hmm. We were talking about, do we think that Rose believed in this series at all, or do you think she was thinking of it like a, what do we say, cash cow or a... Was she cashing in on, on her mom's popularity at... I don't, I don't in know. In letters to some of her friends, there's very dismissive references to her mother's, I guess I should, GD juveniles that she keeps sending yes. <laughs> to her. I just think that's so horribly mean. So whatever. But she did do a lot of work on these books. And I do believe it's Rose's experience with editing and publishing that helped Laura's ideas kind of transcend yes. into. And there is, le- there is letters between the daughter and the mother, Laura, Laura and Rose, that R- Laura sends the manuscripts to Rose and says, do what you can. And in essence, I'm grossly paraphrasing, uh, we'll link you up to the actual <laughs> the actual uh, documentation of that, but um, basically says, do what you can with these. You know, So they were not only sugar-coated, right. but they were also uh, dramatized for right. reader interest. Why would someone read something boring? That's right. There were things, um, like, even, for example, uh, one thing Laura wrote to her was, um, I have this horrible feeling. I think this was um, On the Banks of Plum Creek Mm -hmm. is the book I think this is in. She wrote to to Rose um, that she had this horrible suspicion that they drank untreated creek water. But that seemed too dirty for modern audiences. So make a spring somewhere, wherever, and we'll drink out of that. (laughs) Okay, so the spring. Yeah, just... She flat out didn't exist, yeah. but, you know, we can't drink dirty creek water no. in modern America, so yeah. just find some other water source and just put it somewhere. So there's a lot of things like that. Right, um, and, that, and Rose, I believe, took some liberties herself without yeah. her mother suggesting them, I, I probably more than... And people like Nellie Olson didn't exist. There are, they're a mixture of three different girls that were mean to yeah. Laura. <laughs> um, so, you know, there are a lot of things like that that are historical inaccuracies um, that really don't affect back to the the storyline mm-hmm. as we know them right the well, and they're not they don't present themselves as being now keep in mind though um, she was 63 to 65 when she wrote this first book and so mm-hmm. i am not nearly 63 to 65 and i cannot tell you what happened when i was four in the yes. big woods yeah, no. for example <laughs> but um they did a lot of writing back and forth to older relatives um you know how was that sugaring off dance at grandma's house um what did you how do you make this? Can you give me the recipe for this? There was a lot of writing back and forth. They wanted to make sure that the facts, as they placed them, you know, where was the river in relation to the creek? So they did a lot of that kind of thing to make sure that no one would write in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is horrible. Why did you ever say that? This is not how it happened. And a few of the people included actually contacted Laura after having recognized themselves. Uh, you know, her cousin uh-huh. Lena, for example, who was told, you know, in the book she was too wild for Laura to hang out with, uh-huh. actually read that book and thought, oh, I'm going to contact my cousin. That's you right. know, I don't know that she was mad, but she's like, wait, that's that's me. Yeah. 
Yeah. Ooh, I, why wouldn't they recognize themselves? Well, because they didn't change the name. Yeah. <laughs> that would be why. There's a clear indicator. <laughs> this is. <laughs> this is my cousin Lena. Anyway, uh, yes, tell your funny story. Okay, I have a funny story. that you know, Almanzo is just not even figuring too much in this. The relationship between the two women, I mean, honestly, he was like the odd man out for a lot of times. Oh. I, you know, he was just, there he was. Well, and you know. Laura was raising a family of women, which is Pa is the guy. Yeah. So, so um, the thing is, there's a good story about Almanzo and Rose that I really think is so lovely. We know Almanzo as the horseman, the expert driver of teams of Morgan horses mm-hmm. and blah, blah, blah. He's driven horses his whole life. That's, he's that guy. So, Rose buys them a car, thinking that would make them a little more independent and etc. So, she happening. buys them a car and she decides to try to teach her father how to drive. And so he's in the driving seat, and they're going down. And there's a little curve in the road, and there's a tree. And so she tells him, whoa, stop. Stop. And he, being the horseman that he is, puts his forearms under that steering wheel. (laughs) You would pull up on the reins. And slow the horses. To slow the horses. And so he stomped where the thing would have been that you could pull it up with your hand, but if you really needed to stop, you stamped on it with your foot. Like, Mm -hmm. that's a stronger muscle. Right. And so... To stop the car, he yanked up on the steering wheel and pulled it off and slammed his foot on the accelerator, and they hit right, hit, they ran right into the tree. And everyone's picking glass out of their face, and it's Lovely. not good. So poor no. Almanzo, but he did get it. And ultimately, he, thought, he was, yeah, he loved his car, and he, after that first really rough bath, that's a, he, I love that big learning story. court. Yeah, that's a good story. And um, about Eliza. Is it like your own learning to drive story? <laughs> I ran over a skunk during my driving Oh. Class. So, in oh. fact, yes, it is a oh, lot like my, my own gosh. learning to drive story. <laughs> it was um, smellier. I had no broken glass in my face. Oh, but... yuck. So there you go. It's a little <laughs> trivia for you. Lovely. Um, also, one small other little trivial thing. Eliza. Sister Eliza, mm-hmm. lazy, lousy Eliza, kind of got her own back because she had this little son named Wilder who was a complete crazy kook and, like, was uncontrollable. <laughs> you know, here's Laura with all this discipline. And Eliza, yeah. you know Eliza had no skill with disciplining children. You saw that back in the school days. Right. <laughs> and so her child came and just started purposely breaking windows at Laura's house. So, really, the karma came back around. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm just saying, you write a poem, you get a broken that's window right. 20 years later. <laughs> Okay. So I love that. Now, um, now everybody uh, lived to a ripe old age, really. He Alonso did. lived uh, until age of 92. And he died in 1949. And Laura was alive until 1957. 57. Just the way the, the world changed between yeah, 1957, imagine. get your image, and, you know, back to the 1867. Eight, thank you. <laughs> My goodness. Yeah, everything. She'd seen the advent of, you know, the telephone, the telegraph, the roads. I mean, 57, she, the television. Yep. She traveled on a plane to see her daughter when she mm-hmm. was in San Francisco. She traveled on a plane. Plane. So Way faster than a uh, covered wagon. I, so, really, her life really is the history of modern America. Absolutely. Within one lifetime. Mm-hmm. How amazing. Yeah, like the biggest changes, you know, from mm-hmm. from her birth to From waiting to six months for a letter from the folks at home to picking up the phone and calling, calling. someone on the other side mm-hmm. of the world. It's just amazing to me. Um, so the books. <laughs> the books, the books. The oh, books. Did we all reread those books until they were we all We did. Side. All of us. Did you have a bonnet? I had, yes, a blue gingham sunbonnet. Mm-hmm. I had a prairie skirt. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of this is not necessarily the lore of the books, though. No, it is not. Because looking, we'll put up a couple pictures, but the... Not of my sunbonnet. No, no, no nor of mine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the clothing of her childhood was very austere and, and dark and not the free-flowing, happy, colorful, technicolor of the t- TV show. And that's... Oh, yeah, and though, when the TV show came about with, you know, Michael Landon. Swoon. Oh, my goodness. Pa. Pa, man. I have to fan myself again. Pa. I know. So handsome, Pa. Now, it did. It debuted in 1974, the TV show, mm-hmm. and it didn't end until 1982. So that's, that's a very long run. That, that is, and that for us, as well as hopefully others listening, uh, formative years. You know, some of us grew up 
with Laura. There was also essence. a very fashionable thing in the 70s. Um, there was a doll called Holly Hoppy mm-hmm. that was very prairie as well. Um, I had a Holly Hoppy doll, and <sighs> I, I mean, we all had petticoats under her oh, skirts. Oh, we did. I, my mom is actually was a costumer. And she decided that she was going to teach her daughter to sew. And so I, she said, what would you like to make? And, of course, I said, I would like to have a prairie dress and a bonnet with the apron and the puffy sleeves and the gingham and the white. And Mom said, okay. And so she went and got the pattern, and she said, maybe you can be this for Halloween. And I said, certainly. And then I learned how hard it is to sew. <laughs> I think I got the fabric, the pattern on the fabric pinned out and cut. And that's about as far as I personally got. Halloween came and passed. <laughs> I was not Laura Ingalls Wilder on, or, yeah, on Laura Ingalls on Halloween that year. I was not my little house on the prairie. And I believe, if my recollection is correct, um, I was going to be outgrowing the garment. So mom, took the project from me and finished it up for me. So I did have my dress for a very short time and fit, but (laughs) I had, okay, I have another story about costumes. Uh I was in a wedding when I was a small child as a flower girl. Mm -hmm. And what was my flower girl dress? Yes, indeed. It was a prairie dress. And that's where I got my blue gingham. So the fashion transcended children to the adult population (laughs) Mm -hmm. because that's what she wanted was a prairie wedding. That's lovely. Also, speaking of subculture, there is subculture. Oh my goodness, there is an entire subculture of Laura Ingalls Wilder devotees. And we know Um, you're listening, so hi. Hello. (laughs) Um, There are so almost every home site has its own museum, Mm -hmm. Um, including, as a matter of fact, um, Carrie. Yes. Uh, who lived in South Dakota. Uh, Carrie's house is a museum as mm-hmm. well, which is interesting. Now, Carrie's house in South Dakota has what I consider to be one of the premier souvenirs. It's, uh, a- it's the China Shepherdess. <gasps> the China Shepherdess is oh. in South Dakota. Okay. Should we just say what the China Shepherdess oh, is? <laughs> well, in every single book, they would go. And it was like the marker that they were home. Ma... They'd set up everything. They'd set up the beds. They'd get the ticks out and fill them with straw. They'd blah, blah, blah. They'd sweep. They'd do all the stuff. And then, as the last touch of every single place they moved, Ma would unpack the China Shepherdess and place it on a shelf. And that's how they knew they were home every single time. Mm-hmm. This China Shepherdess is very intrepid. Mm-hmm. I can't get coffee cups to last a few months. <laughs> We've got a China Shepherdess in a wagon that makes it all, all over. Of, uh, yeah. <laughs> and then it's still there. And I can't believe it still exists. And I when I saw the picture of that, I'm just like, and um, somebody found that out because one of the little fans had written to her, um, where's the China Shepherdess? And she just wrote back, I think Carrie has it. Like, like it was of no real importance. Importance. Yeah. Picture. And then when I saw that picture, I, the, I couldn't control the smile on my face. It's like, oh, there it is. <laughs> I don't think it looks like I meant, I thought, I thought it would look different because she's kind of in um, almost like knicker things in the uh-huh. front instead of uh i just pictured her in the beautiful pink dress or whatever oh, but it's, mm-hmm. it's she's got like knickers in the front and then the whole dress goes um in the back it's very I, i'll have to put a link to that we too. absolutely will get that that made me smile so much but yeah there are festivals there are recreations there are teams of morgan horses especially for demonstrations mm-hmm. at these museums there's a museum within striking distance of here and someday there is. I'm we should tr- go to try to yeah so we should go away we go. should take our kids we should. And do a flashback. We should do a flashback. Yeah, we will. I think that will be great. When the weather gets nicer. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's uh, really one of the houses. It's not too far from here. And no. uh, if we do manage to go this summer, we'll definitely post an update because that is that just goes right to the heart of our childhood. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I could just cry because you know what is at the museum that is near our house? Mansfield, Missouri, Rocky Ridge Farm. What? Paws Fiddle. Awesome. And they still play it. Nah, mm-hmm. they play the old songs that he used to play. But, the, but there is a man or woman that plays the fiddle. Um, I think twice a day during the summer. Well, the fiddle. That's when we should go. Definitely, I want to hear the fiddle. I do too. I think that would be that would be terrific. So those are the two souvenirs that. Oof. Those would be great to see. Yeah, I, I don't think I'm going to go to South Dakota. But if you have, you know, post a note on our oh my on goodness. our show notes. Tell us about it. Oh, yeah. Anyone that sees the shepherdess, oh, so full of envy for that. I've just seen a photo, and I'm already, like, weeping with, like, 
and all friends. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I can't get over how cool that is. Um, and then last bit of trivia that I have okay. um, before I cede the floor is that Carrie's husband accidentally kind of helped um, Mount Rushmore get its name because Carrie's husband, Mr. Swansea, um, had taken this rich banker from back east named Mr. Rushmore up the mountain. They were looking for gold and he was the local expert in where they were going to go, and they travel up there, and Mr. Rushmore asked the local the name of the mountain, and the guy's like, I don't know, what's your name? And he said, well, my name's Rushmore, and he goes, well, then let's just call it Mount Rushmore, I don't know, it's <laughs> Why not? a name before. Uh-huh. So, Carrie's husband, having taken him up there, there you go. Named it. Mount Rushmore. Wow. I mean, at the time, it didn't have, you know, the sculptures well, yeah. <laughs> what? Those are not naturally appearing? <laughs> Crazy. But isn't that the strangest? That is. Like six degrees of separation? Yeah, that, really. Kind of really. I really. That, was very, that was like the weirdest fact. That's a really neat fact. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a lot of links for this one, um, because really, I I was amazed. Uh, she really has touched the heart of America. I mm-hmm. think even now, like every generation has new fans and I just am the staying power and and yeah. and in our economy right now, I think it just like it did in the depression. Although I'm not likening a recession to a depression, I think that it gives us it gives us all hope. And actually, her life. I mean, how many times did this family lose everything? I know. Pick themselves up and start all over again. And look at what her legacy is. I mean, and find the strength within you. I think is what she message. kind of tells people. Find the strength within right. you. That's good. That's a great message. We're going to leave it with that. Please join us next time when we talk about a woman who just could not keep her footwear on her feet. (laughs) The music on this podcast comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.mevio.com. For show notes and links to the things we talked about today, please visit us at thehistorychicks.com. Follow us on Twitter at thehistorychicks with with an X. X. Or like us on Facebook without an X. If you'd like to send real life, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. In the interest of memory refreshment, we thought we'd go through the books. Good idea. The very first book that got published is Little House in the Big Woods. And it's basically, it's a story of Laura, her ma, pa, big sister Mary, and her baby sister Carrie, all living in a tiny log house in the big woods of Wisconsin. Things that happen in this book that stick in my mind are pa making bullets by the fireplace. They would smoke the meat and they had this horrible tradition (laughs) when they butchered the pig. Of blowing up the bladder and making a a balloon. It was a big treat. Woo! The pig balloon, pig bladder balloon. And then they can eat that meat, the tail meat. Yeah. Somehow, uh, I think a modern child may not see that as quite the treat. That no. They did, but they waited all year for that, so that was good. And um, I thought it was cool that this book seemed to be kind of written from the perspective of a, you know, five or six year old mm-hmm. child. Which is what Laura would have been. Yeah, I mean, you know, it talks about candy made from maple syrup and, like, watching all the grown-ups at the dance. And it's just so, it's, like, such a little touching, and everything is so foreign to mm-hmm. us today. Right, yeah. This... It's things that just do not happen. No. Yeah. Like, Mog thinking it's a cow and slapping a bear outside. Ooh, I forgot <laughs> about that, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Ma hit a bear thinking it was, a, it was cow a cow to tell it to move away from the gate. Yep. Wow, that's amazing. I forgot all about that. So that's the first one. When they leave, they don't know how far they're going. How do they know when they're ever going to see anybody again? Mm-hmm. I mean, when you leave, you leave. Leave. It's not like you, know, oh, you don't I see them on Facebook. You don't see them. Mm-hmm. Can't email them. Can't call them on the phone. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, so yeah. that's part of that that I... So that book was published in 1932. And um, moving on from there uh, is Farmer Boy, which actually in my set from the 70s was the third book. I don't know why. Hmm. But anyway, it's the second book that was published, um, and it's called Farmer Boy. And this book really tells you the difference between how Almanzo grew up and how Laura grew up. Because they um, they had, you know, the same food every day, mm-hmm. basically, at Laura's house. Right. And Almanzo's dad was a very prosperous farmer, and they put so much food by, and every meal, I'm surprised the table didn't fall down. (laughs) 
it talks about all these dishes, and luckily she had two daughters to help her wash all these dishes together, because I can't even believe it. They made routinely pie for lunch and for breakfast. I mean, there were pies. Pies, pies, pies. I could eat pie for breakfast and lunch. But it's kind of a special deal. Like, you have a pie. And it's like, yeah, I have a pie. And you're just, like, so excited. But they had just... There's like 30 pies cooling in the thing. I'm just like, it was routine. And they had dairy cows, and they had horses, which is where Almanzo got his love of horses. His dad was a famous horseman. Um, and it talks about really honestly having to walk miles through the snow. <laughs> no real shit. Uphill. Yeah, both ways. But yeah, he's eight years old and had to walk with, they didn't make him um, boots because it was too expensive. I mean, you know, your feet grew out of them. Shoes were not were not uh, as easy to obtain as going mm-hmm. to the mall. And so until her children were about eight or nine, the mom dressed them in moccasins. Which cool. And here he's walking through the blizzard in his to moccasins. school in his moccasins. I thought that was very interesting. I'm reading this to my son, this book, because it, it talks a lot about food, which is very you know tactile. It talks a lot about um, he gets things that are very manly for birthdays. Like, he gets a sled, he gets a team of oxen. <laughs> you know? Oh, wow, my son just had a birthday. I gave him some uh, Mario and Luigi pajamas. Yeah. <laughs> and a scooter. <laughs> and it does talk about how his mom made him a red vest, and it was mm-hmm. a big deal. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, boys are the same. They they love their snacks, and they love their adventures. And, and their oxen. And their, their animals. <laughs> but it was just interesting. Like, the more things change, the more they stay the same. The life of a boy growing up. The stories, uh, the books then pick up with Laura, back to Laura's story. We've talked about Almanzo. Um, and the next book is actually Little House on the Prairie. This is set in Independence, Kansas. Um, a few miles, uh, although Pa didn't know it, into Indian Territory. Right. And um, there's great thought that the Indian tribes that were nearby, which were the Osage, uh, were about to attack the settlers, so, because that mm-hmm. had been happening all up and down the frontier as the Indians, you know, realized what was happening slowly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there were massacres all up and down, and of course, that strikes fear into everyone's heart, I'm sure. One day, uh, a man that Laura ended up calling Soldat Duchesne, French. But anyway, Soldat Duchesne means soldier of the oak. There's some debate whether it really could be him. The timelines don't seem to match up, but that seems like a name that you couldn't just pull out of the sky. No, let's make something up. Either it is or it isn't. There was a Soldat Duchesne, and they think maybe, you know, he had a grandson named after him Mm -hmm. or or something similar. Um, But it it ended up in the book that he saved the family um, by convincing the Indians to leave. And they didn't actually have to. Um, the family was forced by, you know, the rumor mm-hmm. that soldiers were coming to kick all the settlers off the Indians' land to pack up. Pa had just put glass windows in that house. Aww. I know, that's a big deal. Yeah. Glass windows. Oh, yeah. He had just put glass windows in that house um, when they had to pick up and go. And this is the... The irony is that they mightn't have had to go because just a few days after they left, I, uh, the Indians ceded that territory and agreed to move. A little too soon. They left. It's the communication problem. It's interesting that they pit, that the television show picked up the name of this book. Since really this wasn't a major episode Mm-mm. in their lives. No, but it has nice imagery. It Little does. house on the, the prairie. prairie. And also this is where we meet Jack the Bulldog. Mm-hmm. And um, Jack has had to, this always seemed mean to me. <laughs> They were going to cross a river that was very high. And rather than just pick the dog, I mean, dogs were dogs. It's a, back yeah. Then. They didn't have sweaters knitted. Right. Like today. Whole industry of clothing. No. So Jack, uh, he's was an animal. Not put in the wagon. Like, no. can you just not let the dog ride? I even remember thinking that as a little kid. Like, seriously? You're not going to put make Jack in the wagon? And so they had this really scary crossing because the, the water rose up when they were right in the middle. And, but, you know, Paul's a good horse guy, and he made it across. And all's well that ends well, as Ma always says, or whatever. But they couldn't find Jack, and Jack was, as far as anyone knew, no. washed away. Poor Jack. And it just broke my heart to read that. And then? When he comes back. Yay! Hooray! <laughs> having dragged his wet hiney all the way Catch after them. them. Oh, oh, loyal he must dog. Have, I know. Dogs are know. awesome. <laughs> but, you know, here Pa gets up thinking it's a wolf and aims the gun at it, getting ready to shoot it. Can you imagine? <laughs> it's like, Jack, you can't win, my friend. And then later, when the Indians um, 
keep coming by. They're trying to intimidate Ma and Pa into leaving. And they come by and they take all this stuff and they get Pa's tobacco and Jack had to be chained with the logging chain because had a dog bitten one of those Indians, yeah. it would really change the fate of the family. All the yeah, settlers. exactly. You can't have that. That's no. political, not good right no. there. No. <laughs> so Jack has a big role in this book. Uh, the series continues on with the next book on the banks of Plum Creek. And uh, with this book, Laura and her family move again to Minnesota. And they live, for the very first time, in a sod house. Now, on the open prairie, here's the advantage. You don't have to grab up tree, little baby trees, like Mm -hmm. you do all over the east. You know, the trees are constantly seeding themselves. You have to dig out the, you know, and you have to dig out stumps. Well, on the prairie, there's there's none of that. No. Um, but the disadvantage is there's no building material. Right. And so um, they traded their fast horses that had brought them all this way for this man's claim, which had included a already planted wheat crop and a sod house. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess it was a really well-built one. Um, oftentimes in the winter, the people in sod houses were the only ones surviving. To make it. Really. Yeah, because really that's well, a well insulated. really well-insulated place. Mm-hmm. There was an incident where Ma and Pa went out of town for a little while and um, back to town, which is only three miles away. Right. It was like such a luxury to be able to just like run in for the day with right. the children to right three miles. Things. Three miles. We could run, but well, walk. But yes, but one of the oxen, um, one of the oxen stepped through the house. Dead. They went right over the roof. I don't know how much an oxen weighs. Multiple thousands of pounds, yeah. I'm guessing. So that would be not good to have that would be bad. where, like, big ox might come through the ceiling. And the ceiling ended up crumbling. And so Pa took that opportunity to, uh, you know, anticipate that the wheat crop was going to be good. And he went and bought on credit all the boards and lumber and everything he needed to make a board house or a botan house with a botan, uh, a new stove and... Um, it was a really an upstairs, luxury. an attic for the girls, and two rooms. Just completely luxury. <laughs> and we were talking about the way that this house is described makes us think that if you think of the TV show house. Right. I think that's the that's house. That's the house. I, I do think that, you know, how they had the attic bedroom. and mm-hmm. I, right. I really right. think that this house right here is the one they used for their set design. I, for I, house. I agree. And then, um, unfortunately, this book... Because it had windows. Yeah. <laughs> there was natural light inside. <laughs> yeah, it was good. Sod house. Filming. Probably not that no, pretty. No, not so good. But the two very, 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 very bad things happened um, during this year. When the Norwegian left, he had mentioned that it was grasshopper weather. What does that mean? Nobody I don't knows. know. What's that mean? No. So that would be like the Norwegian keeping something to himself you while they think? got out of Dodge. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like a mild winter the year before, I guess, um, gives the grasshoppers an opportunity to spread their territory and lay a lot more eggs and multiply. Oh, my goodness. And so that year, the wheat was coming up nicely. Every good thing was on track. And then over that year, um, 1874, grasshoppers took over. They just took over. They hatched and marched, hatched and marched, and they had to march in like these to make their way to food. There were so many of them that the food was not as plentiful, and so they became on the move. And I guess the state of Minnesota that year offered a bounty on a bushel. How big is a bushel? I don't know. Like a big bushel is one of those baskets. Okay, bushel basket. So they offered fifty cents a bushel for Mm -hmm. dead grasshoppers, and they went bankrupt that year. Wow. Because um, you could just, yeah. you have to kill them and then scoop. Yeah, like so it's and, quite a business. It, and so you know, there's no getting rid of them. There's so many yeah. that they ate everything in sight. The they ate so many, um, even the wild plants that the cows had no nothing to eat. Mm-hmm. The horses had nothing to eat. It was very devastating. Yeah, to not only the economy but to the spirit of everyone. And then mm-hmm. the next year, you know, it happened again. And then inexplicably, they were just gone. One hard Done. winter, you know, just we'll, took care of the. Population, But that was really a devastating economically and ruined mm-hmm. the family's chances in that area. And then the other bad thing that happened. Mary goes blind. This is where it happens. Scarlet fever. I guess complications yeah, from scarlet, scarlet fever. fever. And that it, it impacts the family. And I, she goes, she goes on to school, the blind school. I mean, it's in the TV show, but it's in the book as well. Yeah. It takes a little bit of time for everyone to save up. It's a very expensive um, investment. And that just kind of shows how, important education was to this family mm-hmm. because it was a very 
strong economic hardship. And I, again, you can call me wrong, but I believe that the state of South Dakota actually helped fund part of her education. Oh, I actually I have an actual that. credible link to that one. Okay. So cool. I, I, not, not fully, but, um, and that school that she ended up going to now, it's not in this book, I will tell you, but, um, the school that she ended up going to in Vinton, Iowa is actually still in operation mm-hmm. today. Cool. Uh, the next book in the series, we go from the banks of Plum Creek all the way over to the shores of Silver Lake. And once again, the Ingalls family is on the move. Yeah, the the grasshopper plagues were kind of the, the final straw for this family in this location. And um, they really were kind of desperate. And they didn't know what they were going to do. And as if riding in on a white horse to save them, Aunt Dosha from back in the big woods appears. This happens several times where family from back east just appear I'm on the their way out. west seriously on their way west mm-hmm. it, it's like you know they come they go they come they go so aunt dosha's new husband has offered charles a job with the railroad he used to be the um i guess you'd call it the accountant he was like the comptroller for the railroad <laughs> to control the pay mm-hmm. and all this the thing is he had to accept right then or he'd give it to somebody else he got first mm-hmm. dibs, but if he didn't want it right then, he had to have somebody, so they had to And was his spirit, he took it. And he did take it. It was a way out for the family, but the thing is, he had to go ahead, and so his To wife, Dakota. The yes. Dakota territories. Yes, and his wife and children were left behind, and they they had to agonize over how this was going to happen, because he had to, you know, take all the stuff with him and set up house, and they agreed, Ma and Pa, that they would take... Ma would take the children on the train. train. Now, by now, at this point, there's another baby in the house, little baby sister Grace, and everybody except Pa and Laura have had scarlet fever and Mary's blind. Yes, and so it was a bit of an undertaking, to say the least. Um, Laura had never been on a train before. I'm not entirely sure Ma had ever been on a train before, but she carried no. it off pretty well. Yeah. I mean, you know. You just kind of do it, yeah. As it's like traveling the of... first time with a baby on a plane. You're like, yeah. well, let's just do it. And so um, there are great descriptions, because at this point, Laura has had to become the eyes of Mary by describing. So there are great descriptions. This is when they really, I think this is when she gets really good at it, when she starts describing how the the car looks with the red velvet Mm -hmm. seats, and she describes that there's a, this amazes her, there's a dipper, and there's a thing in the wall, like a faucet. (laughs) There's a faucet in in the wall, wall, and water just comes out, and, and you can drink it. Amazing. It's like, that's such a small, like, not even a three-year-old would be amazing. Yeah, no. no. (laughs) And it was so new and amazing. And I do believe in this book was the very first time she ever ate in a restaurant. Oh, They ate at the hotel at the end while they were waiting for Pa. And it, you know, it's the very first time. And my mother, (laughs) who certainly did not grow up in the pioneer days, I do believe the first time she ate in a restaurant, she rode the train. Really? To Macy's to buy school clothes. <gasps> oh, really? And they would go downstairs in the basement and eat a little sandwich. Mm-hmm. It was like the biggest treat once a year. Yeah. And then, you know, they'd have their sandwich. At Macy's and buy school clothes. And then they'd get back on the train and travel back to their small town. Nice. That's so, a good memory. It's like a little I don't remember. Legacy. Do you remember your first restaurant meal? I don't, I don't know. No. No, no, no. It was probably like Denny's or something. I have a hard time. I know. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to remember my last restaurant meal. <laughs> But yeah, this this family is very into the restaurant meals, but that's kind of amazing how how your family is, is into the restaurant meals. Oh yes, yes, not the Ingalls family. No, no. <laughs> so when they get there, um, there's great descriptions of how the railroads are being built. She describes the process, um, and one thing about this book is she does describe the process, but the fact of the matter is that Pa and Ma would not let her go out there. And so, really, she never saw it. She is just taking what Pa said Mm -hmm. and putting it in her book as if she saw it. Because the fact of the matter is, the boys that work on the railroad, and here's a 13 or 12-year-old girl. It's not unheard of for a 12-year-old girl to be married. Right. uh, Especially at this time on the prairie. Right. Uh, Women were very scarce. In fact, she ran into her cousin Lena here. Lena. Fast. Lena. I know. She was kind of a tomboy, and she didn't really, like, Ma didn't want her hanging out with Lena. But the fact is, um, Lena has a friend at, who, at 12, had just gotten married. 
Well, even Lena and Laura were pretty glad that that wasn't them. Yeah. Yeah. So they, you know, they certainly had an awareness of how early that really was to have responsibility for a husband and a house and, and everything. But it just, it does mention that girls were getting married at 12 in this book. Mm-hmm. Yikes. Okay. Well, by the end of the book, Laura um, is wondering if she can work hard enough so that Mary can go to the college for the blind. That's what she's talking to her. The next book uh, has Laura at about 13 years old, and it, the book is The Long Winter. In this book, um, the, they're living out on the claim, and they see some signs that make Pa a little concerned. The muskrat Rat house. There's a yeah. muskrat house. There's the, the, all the animals are building their houses very thickly this year. The geese are flying high, fast, and early away this year. So the year. signs are all there to a really tough winter and then when paul goes to town he hears um an indian talking about how this is the year that there's supposed to be the big snow like mm-hmm. i you know traditionally there's like a pattern or something and and paul actually puts a little credence in this because all the nature signs are pointing to this and then here comes this indian who lives in the land you know right. so paul decides they are moving to town better safe than sorry the claim shanty will it's not hold too them. cold it's yeah they'll die out there and so he has built um he built like a speculator he built a building and he called he actually built two but they just talked about one store building and they decide rather than rent it to a um a lawyer mm. or somebody they're going to go ahead and live in it in town, and therefore the girls can go to school. Right. So they become they go from country girls to town girls. Yeah. And Laura has some issue with this because she wants to be out in the open, helping Pa with the haying, and now she's in town with all the people and going to school every day with uh, Carrie and coming home and reading her lessons to Mary, who of course is blind. Yeah, and um, in this. Um, a little, uh, let me back up just a tiny bit. They were on, uh, Pa was hurrying as fast as he could to get the hay in before they moved to town. Mm-hmm. And Laura and Carrie got lost on the prairie. That's never, that's never good. It's like children of the corn. So yes. Right. I don't know what you're going to do. Um, but anyway, they hear a noise of somebody working in the fields and that's the first encounter of Laura and Almanza Wilder. Ooh. Ooh. She recognizes him because, you know. He's Famu. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the fabulous horses. And, that's right. You know, he's really very handsome. We need yes. to put a picture up. He's yes. Yeah. Seriously oh, yes. Handsome. So anyways, that's their first encounter with with him. And um, after that, and he recognizes, oh, I know your pa. You know, this is the way you go. So that's, you know, a little backstory of that. Now, another member of their, his family, Eliza, has taken to school in town that his year. Sister. Sister Eliza, who's always been bossy. We learn in. Farm mm-hmm. boy, she's the boss for everyone. She mm-hmm. thinks she knows it all. She does. She thinks she knows it all. She's got a good heart, but she's like a piece of work. And so she loses control of the dismantled schoolhouse. Like, no tomorrow. It is just like, it is on, like, a substitute teacher has entered the building. Right. Remember how that <laughs> was? go like, crazy. Woo! The no passing. I mean, it was just out of control. And um, for some reason, um, Miss Eliza loved Laura's arch nemesis, Nellie Olson. Nellie. They were best friends. Um, and so Nellie Olson really started to poison uh, the mind of the teacher against Laura and her family. And she, the teacher, started to pick on Carrie, who has been never been very strong. And is, you know, she's very small for her age and she's very timid. And when the teacher is mean to her, Laura can't stand it. Nope. It took up for her. Really kind of started her like tacit approval of the disarray really caused it to get out of control. The little boys loved her because she would snowball fight them. Uh-huh. And, you know, like she was a big girl yeah. that was not too snooty to play with them. And the, the little boys were the ones, man. They would put tacks in people's seats and it was just out of control. The teacher completely lost it. And, you know, she gave, she gave it up after that and went away. And boy, did Eliza Wilder hate her. I must've just killed her later. And her brother wanted to marry this person. That's right. Um, <laughs> Here's what happens bad that year. The weather. Yeah. It's not a good year. Not only the winter. It's just winter upon winter. Blizzard. And and it's too scary for anyone to go out of town for any length of time because the blizzards are coming without warning. There's no Doppler back in the day. There's just <laughs> there's no way for them Storm to watch. <laughs> really tell what's going to happen. And the storm just keeps coming to the point where the railroad just flat out gives up trying to dig out the what they call the cuts, which is where they had to like kind of blow the 
blow the hill mm-hmm. to make the train go through. Right. They would fill up with snow. And then dudes would come on a little hand cart and dig it out. They just got, they, it was done. They were done. They were going to wait till spring. No more supplies were coming I mean, till spring. They are shut off. Mm-hmm. So whatever was in the town, that was what was in the town. And honestly, people just started to starve to death. There was no more, uh, toward the end of this winter, there were no more supplies. There were no anything. And, and then here appears Almanzo Wilder again. Brave. So Brave. A rumor, manly. Manly. A rumor goes through town that some guy outside of town has some seed wheat. Which seed wheat's perfectly edible. I mean, it's wheat. Mm-hmm. It's, you know. Right. But the guy's saving it to plant. And so, Almanzo and, and Cap Garland, who, man, I always thought was so handsome too um <laughs> they decide the prairie guys yeah they decide to on no more information than that rumor see if they can find the guy now keep in mind it's dangerous to be out there with these blizzards coming but they take their life in their hands and they find this guy and they bargain with him and they get him to sell him all the wheat and they bring it back to town just in time and everyone really is saved by that action that's just enough to get him through until the trains came through and it was enough of a um trauma really that years later, Almanzo and Laura came back, and they had a celebration. Like, anyone who had lived through the long winter got uh-huh. a special ribbon to wear. <laughs> oh, did they? Yeah, it was, like, a big deal. Like, I survived the long winter. That's awesome. Like, I ate the big burger That's at right. so-and-so. Yeah, but they got to wear that. Unfortunately, we are running out of time on our podcast today. We have three more books to cover, and I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to record a special minicast of the last three books, and we will post that in just a few days. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Happy birthday, Laura!